Hello, everyone. Welcome back. You're listening to Perplexity, a mystery podcast. As always, I'm your host, Kadra, and thank you so much for listening and for being here. I am very excited to get into this next episode with you guys. It is a doozy. Uh, But before we do that, quickly, if you missed last week, that was episode seven, and it was a long episode, but a wild ride, packed full of fascinating information. I covered the Heaven's Gate cult. That was my first uh, cult episode. So you definitely want to go back and listen to that if you missed it. And if you like what you've been hearing so far and you haven't done so yet, please be sure to leave a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on. It's super easy. You don't even have to type anything. Just click the star rating option when you pull up the podcast. Um, I think on Apple, it does leave an option for you to type things. So if you want to type a review, that's incredible, fantastic. You can also follow the podcast so that you know when new episodes have been released. And if you have topic requests or you want to share a crazy story with me that I'll read on the podcast, you can email me at perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. Seriously, guys, it can be anything creepy that's happened to you, any mysterious, true crimey stories. Uh, It can be something that happened to a friend or a family member, as long as they've given you permission to share that. If you want to change names and keep things anonymous, that's absolutely fine. I would love to read your story on the podcast. So email it to me. Or if you have an idea for an episode or you want to share an article with me, email me perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram for the latest perplexity updates. That's perplexity mystery podcast. I will follow you back. So instead of reading out all my sources today, I want to make sure I have time to really dive into this story, uh, do it justice. So the sources today are going to be listed in the show notes. Today's story was a listener request, and it's going to be really heavy. So before we get into this trigger warning, content warning, I will be discussing some very heavy topics like sexual assault, violence, and murder. And these cases very often involve children. So letting you know that in advance, if that's not something that's for you, that's absolutely fine. Here's your chance to stop listening. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about what has become known as the I-45 killings or the I-45 murders. Uh, And these murders took place throughout the Houston and Galveston, Texas area. There have been dozens and dozens of women and young girls found off Highway 45 since its construction in 1971. And throughout the past 50 years, there have been several serial killers that have been identified as likely being responsible for these murders. Because of all these disappearances and murders, some people refer to I-45 as the highway of hell. And today we're going to just be focusing on some of the murders that took place in the 1970s. There have been other disappearances and murders that also took place in the same area during the same time period. I'm just going to be talking about some of them. So let's talk about I-45 first. So for people who are not familiar with Texas, I'm going to break it down for you guys as best as I can. I'm a Texas native myself. So I've driven on I-45 before. 
the I-45 highway is a 284-mile stretch of highway, and it runs through the east side of Texas, beginning in Dallas, and it runs all the way down south to the coast in Galveston. It is the also the easiest way to get from Houston to Galveston. So it's a very popular highway, and it was constructed in 1971. Because this highway was constructed, it resulted in there being a major population growth and a business boom, specifically in construction and oil businesses in the Houston and Galveston area. It became a lot more common as well for drifters and for traveling workers to come to this area. However, despite this major growth to this day, there are still a lot of areas off I-45 in Houston and in Galveston that are pretty desolate. Abandoned oil fields and marshes plague this landscape. The same year that I-45 was constructed, the disappearances began. And on June 17, 1971, there was a 13-year-old girl named Colette Wilson, who was from Alvin, Texas, and she disappeared on June 17th. She was last seen at a bus stop on County Road 99 and Highway 6, and County Road 99 intersects with I-45. She disappeared after she was dropped off at the bus stop by her band director. She was one of 12 children, and she really wanted to go to band camp but her mother was not able to drive her, so she had gotten a ride from her band director. It would be five months later, on November 26th, 1971, when her body would be discovered. It was found near the Attucks Reservoir off Highway 6 in Houston, about 35 to 40 miles away where she had last been seen. She was found nude, and she was missing her head. Her skull was found about 45 feet from her body. Her cause of death was a single gunshot wound to the head, and her clarinet was never found, which I always thought was a really heartbreaking detail. Just a few short weeks later, a 14-year-old girl named Brenda Jones disappeared as well from Galveston on July 1st, 1971, and she was on her way to visit her sick aunt in the hospital. Her mom had given her bus fare, and when she was coming home, the bus driver told her to come straight home because it was getting dark. She responded that she was going to go get her sister a Coke. Her body was found very quickly, just a few hours after she disappeared. She was floating in the water near Pelican Bay in Galveston. Her body was still warm. She was found with her hands and feet bound with her own shoelaces, and her underwear was stuffed in her mouth. Her cause of death was head trauma. Brenda was very close with her sister Phyllis. They enjoyed dancing to Soul Train together, and when Brenda grew up, she wanted to be a Sunday school teacher. Just a little over a month later, on August 4th, 1971, 14-year-old Rhonda Johnson and 13-year-old Sharon Shaw from Webster, Texas, were hanging out together in Galveston, walking along Seawall Boulevard when they disappeared. It was one week before Sharon's birthday. They had gotten a ride from Webster to Galveston from one of their friends, and when the friend wanted to return home, 
They tried to get the girls to come back with her, but they wanted to stay longer and said that they would just catch a ride back. So keep in mind, hitchhiking was very popular during this time period and very normalized. You'll hear a lot of hitchhiking stories in these uh, disappearances. So two teenage boys were fishing in Clear Lake and thought that they saw a volleyball, but it turned out to be a human skull. This would later be identified as Sharon Shaw's skull. Rhonda's remains and the remainder of Sharon's partial remains were found just 35 yards apart from each other, about five months after they disappeared on January 3rd, 1972. Their remains were also found only 10 minutes from Sharon Shaw's house. Less than three months later, on October 28, 1971, 19-year-old Gloria Gonzalez disappeared. She disappeared near her apartment in Houston. Gloria was a bookkeeper, and her torso was found first on November 23, 1971. There was a two-foot-long cord wrapped around her neck with a small piece of wood. This was known as a groat. Someone would use a groat when they're trying to strangle someone because it allows for more control and less effort. Her skull was found one week later. It had been crushed, so the cause of death could have been blunt force trauma. Gloria's remains were also found near Attic's Reservoir, the same area where Colette Wilson's remains would be discovered later on November 26th. Twelve days after Gloria disappeared, 12-year-old Allison Craven from Houston disappeared on November 9th, 1971. Her mother reported her missing after finding out that Allison disappeared from their apartment, located off Highway 45. After finding partial remains early on, investigators recovered the rest of her body in a Pearl Land field three months later, just 10 miles away from her home in late February of 1972. And I'm sorry guys, but these are just, they're gonna keep coming. So not even one week later, on November 15th, 1971, 15-year-old Debbie Ackerman and 15-year-old Maria Johnson, who were students from Ball High School, were hanging out together in Galveston when they disappeared. The girls had been shopping for gifts at a Galveston mall, and they were last seen together near a Baskin-Robbins ice cream shop, accepting a ride in a white van, which the Baskin-Robbins thing got me because I used to go to Baskin-Robbins all the time when I was a kid. I had one right off of uh, the street that we grew up on and I mean I just I spent so many nights at a Baskin Robbins so it just felt nostalgic to me and very sad. A friend that worked at the ice cream place named Cindy said that the girls uh, Maria and Debbie seemed to recognize the person driving the van and Cindy also said there's no way they would have gotten in the van if they wouldn't have known the driver. So remember that for later. Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson's bodies were both found November 17th, just two days after they disappeared. Both of them were bound by the hands and feet and partially nude from the waist down. They were found side by side in Turner's Bayou. Both of the girls had been shot in the head. On January 3rd, 1973, 16-year-old Kimberly Pitchford was taking a driving test at Dobie High School in Houston, Texas, 
located off Highway 45 and the Sam Houston Tollway when she disappeared. She was supposed to call her mom for a ride, but the call never came, which her family said was very unlike her. It's said she accepted a ride from someone driving a Volkswagen Bug. Her body was found just two days later, on January 5th, in a drainage ditch. Her cause of death was strangulation. On September 6, 1974, another pair went missing. 12-year-old Brooks Bracewell and 14-year-old Georgia Gear. They were at the U Totem convenience store, which apparently also had a game room area and was part of a motel. It was located off Highway 45 and FM 517. And it was a cool place to hang out for the kids. It was near their houses and inside there were arcade games and a pool table. Brooks and Georgia went there on September 6th and there were some conflicting reports as to why they were there. Some people said they had skipped school that day and some other sources said that they didn't have school that day because there was some type of teacher's workshop. But their books were found, uh, their school books were found in the woods like they had dropped them off before they went there. And apparently Brooks's sister Sherry also bumped into them at the motel. Brooks asked her sister Sherry for a ride but Sherry said that the car was already full and that they would have to find their own way home. One of Sherry's friends reported she could recall looking in the rearview mirror as they left the motel and that they saw a thumb go out to hitchhike. The police, it seems like, did not handle this case well at all. They actually allowed Georgia's dad to go interrogate the motel manager <laughs> definitely not how that process should have gone. Some of Georgia Gear's remains were found in 1976 in a ditch in Alvin, Texas. But due to police neglect, the remains were left unidentified until a new detective took over the case seven years later in 1981. So it also wasn't until 1981 that this case was worked as a homicide. For seven years, 12-year-old Brooks Bracewell and 14-year-old Georgia Gear were considered runaways. A lot of these girls, actually, uh, their cases were not taken seriously. They were considered runaways. And they had 26 cents in their pockets and no bags packed. Uh, on April 3rd, 1981, seven years after their disappearance, the remains of Georgia Gear and Brooks Bracewell were finally identified. Both of their remains were found in the same ditch, side by side. It was determined that both girls had been beaten to death. On May 21st, 1977, it's believed that the last victim disappeared, which was 12-year-old Suzanne Bowers of Galveston, Texas. Suzanne disappeared around 10.45 a.m. when she was walking between the 4,000 block of Avenue South to the 3,100 block of Avenue P, which is along the seawall again in Galveston. Her remains were found two years later off of I-45 on March 25, 1979 in Alta Loma, Texas, which is a very small town near Santa Fe, Texas. So 12 victims here, all young females between the ages of 12 and 19, 
that disappeared off I-45 between 1971 and 1977. They sometimes disappeared in pairs. Their bodies were often found in or near bodies of water or in ditches located close to I-45. There were several suspects in these murders, but we are going to talk about two. First, there was a man named Michael Lloyd Self. In 1972, he was a gas station operator and a convicted sex offender from Galveston. And he became a suspect in the murders of Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw, who had disappeared together. He was known to be a peeping Tom, so gross. And Rhonda Johnson's grandfather was a councilman, so he had a lot of power in their area, and he had really been pushing for their case to be solved. Within nine days of Don Morris and Tommy Deal taking over this investigation, they had identified and arrested Michael Self and gotten him to sign a confession. Another police officer reported he had seen Don Morris getting aggressive with several suspects that he interrogated, including Michael Self. Self also had some very interesting things to say after he had been interrogated by Don Morris. So Self claimed that when he was interrogated by Don, he was thrown up against the wall and poked with a nightstick. He also claimed he had been suffocated with a plastic bag and burned with cigarette butts and a radiator. Then Self claimed that Don Morris took his revolver, emptied out five bullets, and set them on the table in front of them, closed the chamber, spun it around, and held the revolver up to Self's head. For those of you who don't know, revolvers hold six bullets. So he left one inside and played a little, a little game with Michael Self. Because you can totally do that with your suspects, right? <laughs> so Self claimed that Don Morris would pull the trigger and then say, confess, and then pull the trigger again and say, confess. So without shock, um, Self signed a written confession. I feel like anyone would do that under those circumstances. <laughs> and Self was taken to the district prison on September 18th, 1974. And Self was convicted of killing Sharon Shaw and he received a life imprisonment term. I find it strange that he was convicted for killing Sharon Shaw also because Rhonda Johnson was abducted, you know, with her, but they didn't convict him on that for some reason. And Michael Self's confession showed great discrepancies to what actually happened. He said he picked up the girls and went to Shaw's house, but they were already missing at the time that he said that that happened. He also said he dumped their bodies in El Largo, which is not where they were found. He said he dumped their clothing along the highway, but the girl's clothing was found with them. And he also was not able to provide accurate information regarding the date of the murders or how the girls were killed. He was able to take police to their bodies, but it's important to keep in mind that he was from Webster and Webster was a very small town. So it's very likely that everyone would have known where the girls' bodies had been discovered. There was also no evidence at all tying Michael Lloyd's self to the murders. Three years later, 
1976, Don Morris and his deputy Tommy Deal were arrested and convicted of various crimes, including torture and other misconduct against detainees, and multiple bank robberies dating back to 1972. So this is our fine police force that was working this case. Morris was sentenced to 55 years in prison and Deal was sentenced to 30 years. After this, Michael Self regularly applied for an appeal, but was rejected every time. Michael Self ended up staying in prison where he died on December 21st, 2000. It was only after his death that a number of police officials, including the former Harris County District Attorney, stated that they believed Self had been wrongfully convicted. Which, this dude's a piece of shit, let's be clear. He's a convicted sex offender and a peeping Tom. He's disgusting. But he did not deserve this by any means. So let's talk about our second suspect because we have a lot to unpack here. An investigation by the League City Police and the FBI in the 1970s identified another local resident, Edward Harold Bell, a known exhibitionist, as a suspect. Edward Bell had been a Boy Scout when he was young. He graduated from Texas A&M University and played the trombone in the Aggie Marching Band. He was a successful traveling businessman and a father of three. He had been divorced several times. He had also been arrested at least 12 times on charges of showing his genitals to children. And each time he managed to avoid imprisonment by cutting deals for psychological treatment. Gotta love it. Bell claimed that in a 12-year period from 1966 to 1978, he must have exposed himself to, I don't know, 10,000 girls. Yeah. <laughs> so in the late 1960s, Edward Bell spent a lot of time in psych hospitals for quote-unquote treatment. And you'll see why I'm saying that in air quotes very soon. Because three years after he started treatment, he was arrested again and then agreed to be involved in an inpatient program for quote-unquote perversion. And during this time, his marriage and his relationship with his children was severed. He would often use his time inside the hospital to groom and assault young women and underage girls that were also at the hospital receiving treatment. He also married one of these girls after his release from Jenny Seely Hospital, and she was only 17 when they met. This was also the same hospital that Brenda Jones visited her aunt at. Wow, what a coincidence. Eventually, Edward Harold Bell got property near the beach in Galveston, Texas, where he became a resident. And he also invested in a surf shop where he became part owner. He apparently had all this diving equipment that he wasn't using and he wanted to sell it. So he took it to the surf shop and talked to the guy that owned it, this man named Doug, and asked if he wanted to sell the diving equipment and Doug agreed. And so then Edward became part owner. 
Doug would later describe Edward as a creepy weirdo. Among the surf shop's frequent customers were young girls, including Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson. Edward also drove a white van, which was said to match the description of the van that witnesses described Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson getting into. And remember, their friend Cindy said that it looked like they knew the guy that they got in the van with. And if they frequented the surf shop, this would make sense. Edward also lived in a trailer, which was found parked just two miles from where Debbie and Maria's bodies were found. In 1972, for a brief period, Edward Bell actually moved to New Orleans, Louisiana, and the disappearances and murders conveniently stopped during that time. But in 1973, he moved back to Alta Loma. And then in 1974, Bell acquired a plot of land in Dickinson, near Dickinson Pond, where he kept his trailer. This was just two miles from where Brooks Bracewell and Georgia Gear were last seen alive, and only minutes from where Suzanne Bowers was found. In 1974, there was also a woman getting treatment for alcohol addiction at the Jenny Seely Hospital, and her name was Suzanne Witten. Suzanne Witten must have been struggling with her treatment because she left the hospital at some point to go buy alcohol for a party that she was going to be attending. And when she left to do this, she was attacked by a man who told her that he raped women once or twice a week. A grand jury declared that there was insufficient evidence and Edward Bell was never charged with this attack on Suzanne Witten. Edward Bell also said later in an interview that Suzanne Witten was hallucinating and delusional. In case you aren't convinced, I have plenty more. Just a few months before Brooks and Georgia disappeared, two girls named Vicky and Susan were hanging out at home when there was a knock on the door. The man at the door was none other than Edward Harold Bell, and he claimed that there was a guy outside that had caught a large fish, and he asked if they wanted to come check it out. So the girls followed him outside. They ended up getting to the edge near the water. This is when they realized there was no guy and no fish. So when they went to turn around to ask Edward Harold Bell what was going on, Edward had his pants down and he was in a bush. So the girls understandably freak out and they ran off. They were unharmed. Also, remember, Kimberly Pitchford was abducted by someone driving a Volkswagen bug. And Bell worked for Volkswagen and he had been arrested from a Volkswagen before, according to arrest records. Edward Bell was also born literally three turns from where Kimberly Pitchford's body was found. He grew up near the waterways, which is interesting because these girls are often found near water. So I think a lot of this speaks to things that happened in his childhood. Also, in case you forgot, because I very briefly mentioned this before, Edward Bell was a traveling salesman. So he often traveled up and down I-45 to get from Houston to Galveston. So he was always in this area. In 1978, Edward Bell was driving his truck 
and found a group of teenage girls on a street hanging out in Pasadena. And Edward decided to stop his truck, pull down his pants, get out of the truck, and proceeded to masturbate in front of these teenage girls. Meanwhile, there was a man named Larry Dickens, and he was in Pasadena visiting his mother. He was in her yard mowing the lawn for her, and Larry Dickens was a 26-year-old former Marine. He also had a three-year-old daughter, and his daughter was outside playing. As I'm telling you this story, keep in mind Larry's three-year-old daughter was playing in the front yard when all of this occurred. So Larry Dickens sees what Edward Harold Bell is doing. He sees this disgusting event unfolding and he decides to do something about it. So he confronts Edward and he manages to get this guy's car keys taken away from him. So Larry's holding on to Edward's car keys while his mom calls the police. So Larry gets the car keys and walks back towards his mother's house and Edward doesn't like that. So in retaliation, Edward Bell goes to his truck and he grabs his handgun. Edward Bell then proceeds to shoot Larry four times in the chest and Larry's mother then brings Larry's daughter back inside the house. So she witnessed her father getting shot four times before Larry's mom was able to get her back inside. But Larry's three-year-old daughter was unharmed physically. Um, she was brought back in the house. And then at some point, Larry's mother, I guess, ended up back outside to help her son or check on him. Larry collapsed in his mother's arms. And while he's laying there bleeding out, I guess that wasn't enough for Edward. So Edward went back to his truck and grabbed his hunting rifle. Edward approaches Larry Dickens and his mother, and he places the hunting rifle barrel to Larry's forehead and fires, killing him instantly. Edward Bell then got his truck keys and fled the scene, and he must not have known Pasadena very well because he drove into a cul-de-sac and was subsequently apprehended by the police. So Edward Harold Bell was arrested and a $125,000 bail was placed, which seems very low to be considering his crime. And several weeks later, he posted bail and conveniently fled the country. For 14 years, this man roamed coastal towns in Mexico and Central America, and he settled in Panama, guiding dive trips and living aboard a sea boat, just living his life. He assumed the identity of a dead cousin named Cecil Boyd and told people to call him Wally. I don't know why I hate that detail so much, but I do. <laughs> And in 1993, he was eventually arrested in Panama and extradited back to the United States after an episode of Unsolved Mysteries aired about him. So fun fact, Matthew McConaughey, the famous actor, had his big break when he starred in this episode where he portrayed Larry Dickens. Edward Bell was subsequently convicted of Larry Dickens' murder and he received a 70-year sentence. 
So in 1998, Edward Bell wrote several letters to the Harris County attorney, which Harris County is a very large county that includes Houston, for those of you who don't know. So in these letters, Edward Bell confessed to the murders of five girls in 1971 and six more between 1974 and 1977. So these 11 girls became known as the 11. Keep in mind, like I said, after I listed all the victims, there were 12, and I think there were a lot more. There's probably several in Louisiana, and I would not at all be surprised if there's a crap ton in Mexico and Central America. Something to keep in mind, but he wrote about the 11, and he was quoted in the letter saying, the 11 that went to heaven. That is why they became known as the 11. There is also an A&E documentary that is apparently on Amazon Prime. I haven't watched it, but it's all about the 11. And I've heard it's really good. So if you want to learn more about this case, you can definitely check it out. The letter that, or the letters, plural, that Edward wrote also contained details related to the cases that were never made public, including how he shot Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson with a 357 Magnum, huge gun. And he also described where the bodies were discovered. Edward stated he didn't remember the names of most of his victims, but he did confi confidently say that he killed Debbie Ackerman, Maria Johnson, Colette Wilson, and Kimberly Pitchford, as well as two other then unnamed girls whom he had abducted from Webster in August 1971, which would later be identified as Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw. He also claimed that he picked Debbie and Maria up in his white van and that they told him they were tired of high school boys and wanted a real man which you are the opposite, sir. And that is definitely not what they said, I guarantee you. <laughs> I just, I love how these assholes always try to make up these stories and like inflate their egos because they hate themselves. That's really what it is. He was also able to provide initials, hair color, and ages of most of the rest of the victims. Brenda Jones's sister, Phyllis, is also convinced that Edward Harold Bell was responsible for her sister's murder. He also, quote unquote, confessed to his involvement in a secret government program that apparently brainwashed him into becoming a serial killer and a rapist. And he called this program the program. Really original. He said his education in the program began when he was just three years old. Which is interesting because when Edward Harold Bell was three years old, there was uh, one time when he was playing in the yard with his brother, who was five years old. Apparently, his brother said that they should go see Edward's girlfriend, who was a three-year-old girl that lived next door. And so they went to go see this girl. They decided that she should take her clothes off. And Edward's brother left, but Edward stayed, and eventually he was caught with the neighbor girl by her mother. And then when he went home, he was beat by both of his parents. Edward also said that his father had a cousin molest him when he was eight years old, and that his father put out a hit on him. <laughs> 
when he was 15 years old because the program wasn't going the way his father thought it should. So this guy is definitely deranged. There is a theory that Edward Bell often used psychological issues as an excuse to get out of jail time and dissociated himself from his crimes by making up this program that indoctrinated him into being a disgusting excuse for a human being. It's a lot easier to dissociate yourself and blame someone else than have to hold yourself accountable for despicable things. I absolutely think that he used his psychological issues as an excuse because he continued to take advantage of the situation and rape and assault young women and girls and groom them during his time in the hospital. So initially, when Edward Harold Bell wrote these letters and sent them, the DA was convinced that he was lying. Apparently, they felt that Edward Harold Bell was lying, they had a gut feeling, and so these letters were not taken seriously during that time. <laughs> so, all of this investigative work that I described, you know, what the girls were up to, the van, the Volkswagen, all of that, and like a lot of their remains being found, the people being identified, a lot of that was because of work that would be done later by a retired detective from Galveston named Fred Page and an investigative reporter from Houston named Lisa Olson. Fred Page and Lisa Olson were also major contributor contributors <laughs> to Sharon Shaw's case being reopened. Despite this, Edward Harold Bell was never charged with these murders. I cannot get over that. It just makes me so angry. <sighs> he was never charged. He remained a prime suspect until his death on April 20th, 2019. He died at the age of 82. And I couldn't find information on how he died, but he was 82, so I would assume it was natural causes. So this asshole got to lead a full life and explore the world, really, live on a boat, act like nothing happened, didn't really have to take any kind of responsibility for his actions. And meanwhile, all of these girls' lives were cut short and their families were forever changed. So, sorry guys, this case is a real bummer, but that is the story of the quote-unquote 11, really the 12, that were murdered along I-45 in the 70s. Keep in mind, again, there were a lot more disappearances and murders than the ones I listed here. I just talked about these few today. Also, this is not where the story of the I-45 killings ends. Absolutely not. You might have noticed in the title it said part one. It's believed that multiple serial killers operated off I-45 and dumped their victims from the 70s to the 90s. So, next week, we will get into part two, where I will be talking about the Texas killing fields, located off I-45 in League City, Texas. So be sure to tune in for that. I know this episode was heavy, you guys, but I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, 
share the link with a few of your friends. Be sure to leave a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on. And follow the podcast so that you know when new episodes have been released. Remember, if you want to send me a story or you have a topic request, you can email me at perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram as well for the latest updates at Perplexity Mystery Podcast. Thank you guys so much, as always, for listening, and I will talk to you guys soon.